Join us at The Hedge for a conversation about engineering, technology, and business. In this episode, Russ White, Tom Ammon, and David Huberman dig into building up the next generation of network engineers. Well, welcome, Tom, back to The Hedge. And David, your first, ch- your first shot at being on The Hedge. We're very formal here. I'm glad to see you got your tuxedo on and you're all set to go. <laughs> so where are you, David? Uh, I'm coming to you today from the data center capital of North America, Ashburn, Virginia. Ashburn, Virginia. Oh, that's cool. Now, I always heard that there were tons of data centers around Austin and around outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and other places as well. And Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, right? Oregon has that, all that lovely uh, water power and wind power. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, Tom, you're in Austin today. Is that correct? Yep. Great. Awesome. So anything you want to say before we start diving into beating up on David about next-gen network engineers? <laughs> no, no, let's, let's get to the beating. Yeah. Let's get to the beating. So David, you wrote this really interesting article. I think it was based on, uh, you posted a link to a video from APNIC48 about the next-gen careers, Bob, uh, which I'm assuming you were on. It looks like I see you on the picture there. Talk to us about you know, the general background. What drove this? What, what are we getting at and where are we in the networking world? The network engineering world, the hardcore network engineer folks who work in the core, folks who have moved up and are these days in management and executive management, uh, we're in a much different place today than where we were when we were growing up. I think in the past, it was a lot easier to break into network engineering, and your career path was fairly natural. You went to work mostly for an access network, especially here in North America. There were so many different access networks, big and small. So describe who you mean when you say access networks. So people, some people may not know like, who sure. you're talking about. So we're talking about from dial-up networks, access to the internet, where you'd use your modem, get a dial-up, get, get you online, speaking BGP to somebody else, all the way up to AS701, all the way up to UUNet, which was the big guy at the time in the late 90s and early 2000s. Right. So, so a lot of times, if you were starting out as a network engineer, you could start at some local ISP or some local edge provider, not necessarily a transit, but, you know, like a, a last mile, uh, Comcast or, you know, some, not necessarily Comcast because Comcast is still big, but like some small cable company. Um, out at Oak Island, we have a company called uh, ATMC, which is just a little fiber company that just supplies fiber to a lot of local, lot of local residents and stuff. So you start someplace like that. And then you gain experience and you get to know people and you peer with larger providers and you move up the stack. Maybe you move to Equinix in the IXP side or Colt or somebody, or maybe you move up someplace else. Or on the other side, maybe you start at a vendor like I did. Well, actually, I didn't really start at a vendor. I really started working on essentially what was an enterprise network. Eventually, you might move to a vendor. And in that world, you might move around and learn a lot of stuff. So that seems to be the way people, when I came into the networking industry, grew up, so to speak. That's kind of where they came from. You ask people where they started from, they always started from I don't know, some small provider you'd never heard of. Uh, and, and what was also nice is we, we used to hire people out of the knock. You'd go, right. work in, you'd go work in the knock and you didn't have to know anything. You just had to have a natural aptitude and a willingness to learn and a good attitude. And you went in the knock and that's where you made your bones and that's where you figured things out. And the sky was the limit from there. Today, that's not so true. Today, 
If you want to get into network engineering, there's a much larger skill set you have to bring to the table. As you've talked about on previous podcasts here on The Hedge, it's not just about network engineering, it's about programming. It's about automation and orchestration, things, concepts we never even knew about 25 years ago in terms of the network engineering, where we did it all by hand. We all had enable, right? There's a lot that goes into a network engineering career from day one today. And yeah, right, exactly. And so then we get in this catch 22, right? How do you gain those skills? And then if you're looking for people with those skills, where do you look for them? Uh, you end up just, uh, just po- poking around, looking at other providers, looking at other places where people already have that skill set. And a corollary to that, by the way, is that if you wander around the IETF today or any, any of these AP, uh, Ap- Apricot, Nanog, you will notice that folks are old. And it's not a bad thing necessarily, right? To have us old farts still poking around and trying to do stuff. It's It's a good thing. You know, we complain about it in the IT world that there's a big push against old folk working in IT. So it's not a bad thing that we have a lot of old folk, but maybe we have not enough young folk. <laughs> Maybe that worries a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> yeah, so what, what some of the operator group communities are doing now is they, because they're well-funded, they're expanding the number of fellowship opportunities. We looked at this and said, you know what, at, at least in Apricot, at least in the Asia-Pacific region, we said, this is a wonderful opportunity to focus on students who are about to enter their careers and people who are just in the first, second, or third year of career. They're learning how to engineer BGP. They're learning how to engineer moving packets across the wire. Let's teach them how to engineer their careers. The work that I've been doing uh, has been in Asia Pacific, but lots of our friends are doing it in other parts of the world. And we've been putting together birds of a feather meetings for fellows, um, inviting anyone, including folks who are young in their career, to come in and let's talk about what's needed in order to advance your career. Let's hear from some of the folks who have done it. Let's hear from some of the folks who are hiring. And let's talk about what skill sets, hard skills and soft skills that they're looking for when they hire. For the folks who have done it, what are some of the lessons they've learned along the way? And we hope that by sharing this knowledge and imparting this knowledge on a new generation of students and engineers, that we can start help preparing people and fill out the ranks. So as you say, Russ, for every for it to become a little bit younger. So, so yeah, so that's actually interesting. And, and there are some other things in there. I, know, I mean, I've got to get Rick uh, Grianzani on the hedge sometime to talk about his experience at college, uh, teaching networking people at college. I, mean, I was just talking to, uh, I was talking to uh, Doug Comer maybe six months ago, and he said, I can't find PhD students. Like, I, it's not, I don't, don't, I mean, it's not sexy right? It's not interesting. People aren't interested in network engineering anymore. And how much of that are we seeing out there, do you think? Is that something that is common or do you think that's like overblown a little? I'm actually going to pivot and say that it's the same as it's always been. Tom and Russ, if you think about who our ecosystem is, actual network engineers, people who not just have enabled, but really understand how to move packets, who really, the old router jockeys. This was always only a couple thousand people at most. This was always a very, very, very niche industry. It's, It's cutthroat. 
It hasn't always been particularly friendly. And, you ha- and you're judged on how smart you are. You really got to be very, very smart, a good problem solver, a good engineer, and you have to have the human skills. If you don't develop the human skills, you're not going to make it very far. So it's in my view, I've only been doing this for 21 years, but it's a really niche industry. So what we see today, what, what Doug Comer is expressing, I think is the same thing that we could have expressed 20 years ago. It's just so, it's just very, very particular. It's a particular type of person for this industry. So have you seen any organizations in their hiring um, do anything that was innovative in this area? Like find ways to, to find people, get them at the beginning of the pipeline? The innovation to me is actually the movement to look at PhDs. I think I must have maybe met one guy. He was, a, he was a Cisco guy, one of the smartest guys I'd ever met who had a PhD. I think a lot of, especially the older generation that Russ and I are a part of, a lot of folks didn't even have a bachelor's degree. That's correct. Yeah, I got my bachelor's, my bachelor's after I started working at Cisco, yeah. basically. And that wasn't at all a stigma. Nobody cared. Did you know how to configure a route map? Yeah. I mean, that's all, the work is all that mattered. Today, I don't know that it's innovation necessarily, Tom, but what I really like is we're getting super smart and accomplished folks out of the PhD ranks in cybersecurity, in DNS, in routing. We're getting folks who have studied this long and hard to understand it at a different level than we do coming in. That's the most interesting, I think, thing I've seen in the hiring. Okay. I mean, that's, well, that's interesting because, so there's, there's that level, but then there's also the kind of the practitioner level, right? The person who actually asked has to configure the route map. Um, and so, I mean, these are two, I think, equally important parts of the, of the talent pipeline. Someone who has a PhD, I, I don't know, are they, are they going to go configure routers? Or are they going to go put a switch in a closet and, and dump config on it? Probably not. Maybe that work isn't for humans anymore. I don't know. I, the, but, I think there is kind of a, a, you know, there's there's two different types of people that you need to to operate the infrastructure. Do you, do you agree or? Well, we've all, I mean, the definition of network engineer has evolved. It's such a it's such a difficult role right now. You can't pay network engineers enough money today because they not only have to be the traditional router jockey, but they've got to be able to automate this and they have to be able to do it at scale. And you're not just your own you're not just your own AS anymore. You're not you don't just have to deal with your own routing domain. You have to deal with all of the different appliances you have to deal with the middleware junk, and you have to deal with a whole bunch of interconnected uh, routing domains that you might be peering with, or maybe they're different parts of your company and v- different verticals or what have you. The networks are much more complex, and they're scaled out at a level that even 10 years ago we didn't see. So the amount of knowledge, the sheer amount of knowledge and, and the breadth of that knowledge that engineers need today is extraordinary. And, you know, that just circles back to the first question that Russ asked, which is, where do you even get that today? Yeah, yeah. And, and, but I, I'm not sure that's an unhealthy thing. I just not, I'm not certain that our education and our understanding of what a network engineer has, has, has moved with the actual change in the industry, right? There is still the perception that we need people who can go put their fingers on a keyboard and figure out how to configure something manually. And in reality... We shouldn't be doing that anymore. I mean, honestly, we're never going to move forward as a practice if, if we can't move up the stack and position ourselves between the application developers, the business, and the physical layer stuff that's going on. So I, I, I think that to a large extent, I think we have achieved that, Russ. I, do, I think the number of humans, network engineers who actually 
go into enable and type conf t is minimal these days. I think we touch it all by script right now. Where it's a problem, we're not knowing how to do that as a problem is when the software doesn't work the way it's supposed to. When you have a complex and well-scaled out network, you have to understand at the very basics, you have to understand the fundamental reason why packets move and why they don't. And having that hands-on experience is a real differentiator in my opinion. I, I do think there are still a lot of people doing CompT, believe it or yes. not. I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking at uh, the things like the Sonar report that just came out, the uh, State of Network Aut- Automation report, and it's only like 30%, I could probably pull it, it's only 30 or 40% that are, that are automating. You know, I and was a in a good people- mood before this podcast. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know... I don't know, but it seems to me that it's not as prevalent as we would like. Part of that may come down to, like, I I have this friend, and I won't say who it was, but I have a friend who said once that a a vendor came in and said, you need to treat all of your routers as if they were Linux boxes. And he said, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. And I think there's still a lot lot more out of that than we would like to believe. Whereas to me, that's brilliant. That's exactly what you want to do. RPM packages to it. And, you know, like I'm driving for an autonomic network. I'm driving for an autonomic, autonomic underlays anyway. You shouldn't be configuring proto- routing protocols on the underlay at all in a data center fabric. Um, you shouldn't have to touch configurations unless you're dealing with policy. You should never, should never touch a configuration on a box if it's just making it work. That's just like crazy to me any longer. But we're nowhere near that right now. But that's that's where I think we should be. So, so do we, is is there I mean, is there a dearth of engineers coming in and, and, and doing it the old way? I mean, I, I feel like I still run into a lot of people who are like, Yeah, I want to learn Python someday, but for now I'm just gonna copy and paste out of Notepad. I to me in my world, that's still fairly common. Like, do we have I mean, is it really true that nobody's really interested in networking anymore? What's the What's the feel on that? I don't think there's a dearth, and I don't think it's true that nobody's interested in that anymore. It's still the same type of personality that the three of us are. It's still the same kind of personality that many of the listeners to the hedge are. We're still around. There's still new people coming into the pipeline. There's still really smart people coming into the pipeline. It, it just harkens back to what I think I said earlier. It's a niche industry. It takes this particular type of person to do this, to be interested in this kind of stuff and to do this type of stuff. And finding them sometimes is a challenge, whether you're Amazon Web Services or whether you're a small regional ISP in Austin, Texas, it is not always easy to hire. So, right. So, that's that's one problem. Now, another problem I've seen recently, and not even just very recently, within the last, last year or so, is I hear a lot of big voices saying there won't be network engineers in enterprises any longer, which I think is total nonsense. But I mean, is that is that something that we're seeing at a larger level or is this like... So that's really hard to measure, right? Because the enterprise world dwarfs internet, you know, infrastructure engineering that we talk about and that we work on. Right. You, you, the, you know, we, you, you guys spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about the IETF and protocol development. The impact of what of what internet drafts has is not in the infrastructure. It's in the enterprise. It's a right. huge impact. I can't measure 
there's too many tens and tens and tens of thousands of companies out there all around the world. And I can't measure what that's like. For some companies, it's good that there are not network engineers. For some companies, it's good that they get a good, reliable product from one or two or three good vendors who make the whole thing work and they don't have to touch it. But for some companies, you're always going to need good network engineers. You're always going to need SEs and infrastructure support from Cisco and Juniper and the others. For so, you know, for some, it's always going to be the case. Yeah. So compared compared to way, the way it was when I came up. I mean, when I first got into network engineering, of course, I have, my background is actually electronic engineering um, and radio and radar systems, stuff like that, and airfield electronics. Uh, so when I first got into network engineering, of course, I was very focused on the physical layer, physical wiring, understanding how it worked from a chipset perspective, uh, you know, wiring SL100 telco switches and stuff like that and punch downs and all that other nonsense and over time i have climbed the stack and went through cisco tac you know and really learned how to configure stuff and then went into basically doing some coding and almost not really full-time because i've never really coded full-time but got enough into coding in theory to understand how the protocols actually work what kind of disturbs me a lot of times is i don't necessarily see a path for anyone in the modern world to come up from anything like that, right? Is that just my imagination or is it really that? So I think the answer to your question is both yes and no. I think in most parts of the world, the answer is you're correct. I think in most parts of the world, there is no path for that. There is, however, a path for that in the communities that have large data center presences. Data center engineers is this new career path where you can come in with an electrical engineering background or with a little bit of a network engineering background or even a mechanical engineering background. And you can come in and you can help run the physical plant of a data center. You can be the hands, the remote hands for the op- the uh, tenants um, and for the organizations that own their own data centers or oper- or, or lease the big data center, the whole facility, you're in there doing all of it. You're, you're doing the cabling. You're doing everything. You're bringing in the fiber that's terminating at, at the DMARC. So there is a path in places like Charlotte. There is a places, path places like Austin, Ashburn, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, uh, you know, Des Moines, any, anywhere where there's large data center presence, that opportunity is still available. Outside of that, I think you're right. Outside of that, I think that's a lost, a lost art. Well, I think, David, I've seen what you're describing. I've seen that not just in the big places, uh, not just places you mentioned, because I've worked, I've worked for Fortune 500 and, and in enterprises and service providers as well. And um, I think pretty much every place I've worked, there's been one person that, that was the data center racker and stacker person who um, I, I had this conversation, I think, at every company I've worked for. You know, this is really cool, but it's, not, it's kind of boring. And I see these guys with these laptops and they're, they're typing stuff on the keyboard. They seem to have a better life than I do. And, and and um, there, there seems to always be someone who's at least, at least, you know, is saying, I think I'd like to get into that. Whether they do it or not, I don't know. But I feel like I've seen it. I feel like I've seen somebody in all of the places I've worked that's, that's it's usually only one, maybe two people, but somebody's like, I see something better over there. And they wouldn't have seen it if they hadn't started in the, um, you know, in the physical rack and stack world. They wouldn't have even been too exposed to it. Now, I'll throw a bomb, I'll throw a little bit of a, of a, of a cat among the pigeons type of question out there. Do we think that the modern education market in network engineering actually supports moving like people from 
the rack and stack into the theoretical design and architecture and business side and being more of an architect like like person because I, I have an answer but i'll let y'all throw out your your thoughts about it first so by education are you talking about schooling or are you talking about both schooling certification training what do you think i mean is it well i mean I, i've got a bad attitude about certification i always have i think certification is not worth the paper it's written on for most folks i think very few folks very few folks who are motivated and interested in getting certifications uh have what it takes or have the background to move into uh, hardcore network engineering. And I'm not going to not hire someone because they don't have certificates. Um, I think that at good companies of any size, the mentorship is there. If you come in, like anything in life, if you come in with the right attitude, as Tom said, you say, hey, that looks, re- that looks really interesting over there, that guy with that laptop. What is he doing? Or that woman over there who's running the business side of things, I'm actually really interested in that. If, if you say the right things with the right attitude and you're at a good company with good people, there's, there's always a path forward. There's always a path to learning. From the formal education side, I'm not sure it's ever been there. Yeah, there's some good engineering schools in this world that offer good courses from good professors or, or, or good visiting teachers who can do that. But I think those are a lot harder to find. Because I do think that what we run into a lot of times is there's a bifurcation between pure theory and pure configuration, you know, or pure physical wiring and, and pure theory. And like, there's almost no mixture. And I think that's what my background gave me was the mixture right? I think that's what your background gave you, Dave, and you, Tom, right? Is this mixture. And the mixture doesn't seem to be there a lot of times. It seems to be one or the other. Well, it seems to be only driven by the individual. Like if the individual sees something and says, oh, you know what? There's more to this. I need to go learn some some principles instead of just clicky typey. Like as soon as someone takes that attitude, uh, then they start to see you kind of, you, ha- you make the mixture for yourself. I don't think there's any institution that can imp- today that can impose that on a student. Or, or certification. Or certification, yeah. Or certification. Sure. Uh, yeah, Definitely not a certification. Like, yeah, I, think, yeah. I, think that's, I think that's where we are. We're certifi- I mean, I know the certification market is actually, um, uh, and, and then this might be throwing cats among pigeons, but, or cat among the pigeons, but I know the certification market actually seems to be shrinking from my perspective. It doesn't seem to be doing well. And I think part of that is because people are starting to realize that these certifications are great, but what am I actually getting out of the time and effort I put in here? And I'm not by any means anti-certification because to me, what the certification does give you is if you're an individual person who doesn't have the mentoring you're talking about, David, right? You're not in a big company where you don't have that kind of reach or whatever. What the certification gives you is it gives you a blueprint of what people who should be a lot smarter than you are think about what you should be learning and what the, what the path looks like. Now, do all certifications fit that bill? I'm not saying they do, but I'm saying that to me is where they should be. What can we do as individuals? Like, what can we do help kickstart people to give the mix? What can we do to bring people in and find the right people? Because as you say, David, it's a very small career field. Um, you know, I joke, about, I joke about my blog, I get 350 hits a day or something crazy. And Ethan always says, yeah, but there's only a thousand people in your audience. So what do you want from life? You know? So I, th- I think, I think what we need to do today 
about bringing in, finding and bringing in a younger generation, the next generation of network engineers is first and foremost is to understand what their sensitivities are. Uh, there is a very prominent and successful leader in our industry who's very young, Yob Snyders, who's leading a lot of the RPKI effort among the operator community from his job at NTT. Yob is in his late 20s, I think, and he w he's not shy to tell you that he thinks that the, uh, some of the operator group, some of the operator communities, the conferences, do a very poor job of being welcoming to a younger generation of network engineers. Oh, yes, I can totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. And he says it's very off-putting. Uh, we had, I was working for Microsoft a few years ago and a Nanog rolled into town. Uh, so I registered 75 engineers, 75 to come to a Nanog meeting. And I was hoping I could just get 10 to come to a second Nanog meeting. And I don't think we accomplished our goal. We have to do a better job as leadership in the network engineering field of making younger generation feel more welcome and feel like there's an opportunity for them for a career. And to do that is first and foremost, understanding what it is that drives them and understanding where their sensitivities are. I think there's also a, a missing incentive for mentorship inside of companies. You mentioned that, a, that great companies will provide a path upward. I think there's zero incentive outside of a person's individual initiative. I, I feel myself because I, I feel like I was lacking it um, in my early career. I feel like I, I want to look for the guy in the data center that's, that's trying to, you know, be the guy on the laptop. So I look around for it, but, but there's no, if I do a good job with that, no one's going to care. There's, there's no incentive. The leadership in most companies I work for, not all, but most of them, it doesn't matter to them if you're if you're re reaching down to lift people up. And I really think individual engineers saying to somebody else, hey, I think you might be good at this. Why don't you give it a try? I think that could do a lot of good all by itself. But the companies have to incentivize it. Yeah, but see, that was the whole purpose. Well, excuse me, let me not misspeak here. That is one of the real benefits of these network operator group meetings. If you have a guy who is getting into routing, who has some programming background, who's getting into automation, who's starting to learn this thing. One of the best things we're supposed to be able to do is bring them to a local operator group or the regional operator group because that's where you meet people because that's where you can talk to them in the hallways and at the bar or wherever it is you are and you can start talking about some of the experiences you're having, some of the experiences that they've had. That's how you form the relationships and get those mentorships. We're recording this a day after Bill Manning passed away. In 1999, when I was in my first year in this industry, Bill taught me one of the most important lessons I ever learned. Bill and I didn't work together. Bill and I met in a Nanoc, and we just happened to talk. And because Bill was friendly with everybody, I felt like he, was, he had become my friend. And Bill taught me that uh, back in 1999, we were talking a lot about prefix filtering. It was, you know, Vario was doing a... Uh, 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 very strict network filtering based on RPSL, based on what's in the IRR, right? And we're talking about the, that today, 20 years later with uh, RPKI. But mm -hmm. Bill's point to me, which was oh, so important to my entire career, was that people pay what you, people route what you pay them to route. If you pay a provider or a peer to route a slash 29, they'll, they'll route it as long as you've paid them enough. And that was a really important lesson for my first year in this industry for me to learn. And I got to learn it from a pioneer like Bill Manning. That happened because I was at Nanog. 
So I think, I think there's two problems. The one you already mentioned, which is the people at Nanog, a lot of them aren't really willing to make people feel welcome, let's say. Uh, but there's another issue that I think is a bigger issue to get people into the NOGS is um, getting them there in the first place. If you go to some enterprise or even service providers and somebody wants to go to one of these meetings, their employer says, we're not in that business. Why would I send you to that? It doesn't matter. No, you can't go. And, you know, I don't know what it takes to overcome that, but that's getting to those meetings. I, get, I agree is key, but I, it's, it's hard uh, to convince employers to, to sponsor that when there's no d- direct business benefit to them. I think people need to see, show them the linkage between individuals kind of upward mobility in their technical organizations with, um, with their own, with their own um, objectives yeah. as a business. You know, actually, Tom, that'd be a great separate show is just to sit and talk about what is justification for sending your people to Nanog? Just like we did the show on open source. Yeah. So, right? so you're absolutely right, Tom. And as an industry, I think we've done a good job of picking up on that because in the last few years, we've made a pretty big change to how Nogs work is we've really localized them. Not only do we have Nogs for almost every developed country and some of the developing countries where it's in the country and it's not far to travel, but in, in North America, we're now doing city NOGs. Uh, Christian Koch and others are doing New York NOG. Martin Hannigan and others are doing Boston NOG. Alex Latsko and others are doing Chicago NOG. There's actually a lot of city-based NOGs that are happening today. Uh, in, in, in Reston, Virginia here, we actually have a, a small networking community that meets every month just to talk about whatever anyone wants to talk about. I think you're absolutely right, Tom. I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, Nanogs and apricots and ripes are big, expensive meetings and big cities, which it just costs a lot of money to get to and be at. And so I think we're doing a really good job as an industry of localizing that type of, of uh, community sharing, gathering and information sharing. But we still need to find ways to get people in who aren't even close to those, right? Um, there's still a lot of people that are onesie twosie, one guy working for a, or one woman working for a, you know, a small grocery chain or whatever the case might be. And they're by themselves, and they're off in some city in eastern Tennessee or something. I don't know, whatever it is. There still has to be a way for those people too, because otherwise, you know, they might be utterly brilliant and we just don't have a path forward for them to understand. Um, and, and by the way, you know, I don't think this just hurts the networking industry. I think this hurts the companies that these people work for in a way that's not quite, not very well recognized. It's so easy for a company to say today, I'm dumping my network, I'm going to the cloud. That is not necessarily the best thing for a given company to do. And just allowing that decision to roll over you, if you're the network engineering person or you're the IT people, is not really the best thing for that company in all cases. So you've got to be a good enough engineer to be able to make the case against that or to see the business side and understand whether or not that's a true statement that it's better for the company or not. Um, And I don't think we have a lot of engineers who can do that kind of thing right now. Right. Some of the, some of the um, onus is on the individual engineers, right? If you, you yeah. can't live in this island anymore where you don't know how to talk and show the business what you actually do for them, um, yeah. it's not all on them. Yeah. And it's okay. the other way around as well. The business folks have to be receptive to ideas from a network engineer who, I don't want to say look, they look down upon, but they don't give credibility to on a P&L. Looking at the implications for a P&L, they don't want to hear from the network engineer. But sometimes they should. 
Yeah, sometimes they should. You, yeah. you want to move? You want to move your workloads to the cloud? Are you aware of just how much more that's going to cost you than what we're doing today? Have you thought about data gravity? Have you thought about what's going to happen from a security perspective? Maybe you get better security out of the cloud. Maybe you don't. But let's have the discussion. Let's not make the assumptions and just say, "Oh, it is true," and we're just going to go do it. Um, we we often don't have the discussion because, as you said, David, there's just the respect for the networking side is not there all the time. But to some degree, that's our own fault because what are we doing? We're down here looking at consoles going, but if I can figure this this way, I can make the route map five lines instead of 10 lines, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. and, and nobody on the business side cares, right, at all. They could care less about how many lines your route map is, or at least they think they don't care. Um, so you've got to figure out how to be that connecting point and finding ways to make that be that connecting point is very, very difficult, I think. So I think it's a really good place to stop right there. It's a good conversation. So David, anything else you want to say on this before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. If uh, uh, I enjoyed it, I have no idea how useful any of those snippets were. But, uh, no, I, I think it was great. great. I thought it was great. Yeah. So um, Tom, anything from your end? No, I think, well, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, I think that this is a, an important problem that um, not just uh, businesses or NOGs or engineers can solve all by themselves. I think we all have to take some part of the responsibility for solving the problem. And I think also it will make our lives, our, the network engineers, it will make our lives better if we, if we participate in solving the problems, because if we don't, yeah. we're going to be faced with having to do a lot of things that other people earlier in the pipeline might, you know, might be willing to do. So, yeah. Excellent. So, David, you blog at, apparently you have stuff on AP, Nick. Do you blog any other place? Because you work for ICANN, correct? So. Correct. So, I don't, yeah, I'm not allowed to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not allowed to have an opinion. No, no. I was just wondering, like, do you blog any other place than AP, Nick? Where can people find you to follow you regularly? Do you have your own personal blog or... Um, yeah, no, I do. I mean, I actually, I blog mostly on the Supreme Court, actually, uh, but I do okay. so actually, I do so on Facebook and I do it privately, so. Okay, no, that's fine. I was just curious, like, cause some people might be looking for your other stuff or where you've been on other panels or something and looking for where you might happen to be. Um, so, Tom, just Twitter and LinkedIn right now still, right? Yes, yes. Here comes the blog shame. Do it, <laughs> do it. Can't get Tom the blog. Been trying for years. Name the blog, but that's fine. All right. And I'm Russ White. You can always find me at rule11.tech. And thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. You can find The Hedge at rule11.tech.